0: Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, today's Thursday, September 17th, 2020. In today's podcast, I'm joined by Michelle Santoyo to discuss induction of labor, what, when, why, and how. Many women undergo induction of labor at some point in their reproductive careers. We thought it'd be a great idea to review exactly why someone would undergo induction, some of the discussions that take place prior to this decision, and then what actually happens during the induction. It is a little different in each hospital, but this podcast should give you a pretty good review of the topic. Next week, we have a two-part miniseries on ultrasound in women's health. On Monday, Steve Inglis and I talk about the most detailed ultrasound during pregnancy, the fetal anatomy ultrasound. And on Thursday, Anna Montiagudo and I discuss the evolution of ultrasound, including gynecologic ultrasound, over the past 40 years. For all of you celebrating the Jewish New Year this weekend, have a wonderful Rosh Hashanah, or as we say, Shana Tova. Thanks a lot. Have a great day and a great weekend. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Michelle Santoyo. Welcome back to Healthful Woman. How you doing?
1: I'm very good yourself.
0: I'm good. How's the how's the quarantine been treating you? I know it is curtailed. Your travel activities, which is a big bummer.
1: It has that and the gym. Yes.
0: Yeah. No gym, no travel. It's like you're out of your sorts here.
1: I created a makeshift gym at home. Yeah, yeah really <laughs> I is. heard
0: about that. Yes, yeah, Sarp said he was uh, working out
1: in your. I have a apartment. rower in my living room. Literally, it's amazing. Yeah,
0: listen, I. I I hear you. It's so hard. I mean, I'm normally in the gym like every morning doing something, and now it's you know it's makeshift. You do what you can. So
1: I spend most of my time on the internet trying to Google workout activities to do at <laughs> home. <laughs> that,
0: that itself is a yes. workout. Well, you look well. It's nice to see you in person. And we're talking today about a topic that's really common in obstetrics, for better or worse, based on how you look at it, which is induction of labor. So obviously, this is something that you talk to patients about every day all the time. I mean, it's a
1: frequent conversation. Yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't even know what the numbers are in our practice. I think in like nationally about 25% or a third of women end up getting induced or pregnant women end up getting induced. I don't know if the numbers are same. In our practice, I guess we're a little more high risk, so maybe we do. I don't know. Feel
1: that we're higher, but because of that, because we have more high risk pregnancies, so we have more medical indications for induction.
0: Right. We don't do a ton of, and we'll talk about these things, these yeah. quote unquote elective inductions. Yes. Yeah. Uh, just because it's, first of all, it's hard to do in busy hospitals because there aren't slots for it. And even if you wanted to do it, you know, there just isn't room, but also it's not, it's sort of just not our style. It's never been for some patients maybe, but not typically. So the idea of inducing labor, someone's not in labor and you do something to them to put them into labor. Why would anyone ever think of doing that? Like, as opposed to just like waiting, you know, until someone goes into labor.
1: Besides an elective induction, the right. main one would be a medical reason. So that right. could either be for maternal reasons or right. for fetal reasons.
0: Right. And that's, that's a really good point to sort of differentiate the other than, again, we'll talk about elective, which is really no reason, so to speak. The main two reasons we do this is either we're saying it's better for the mother's health to no longer be pregnant versus continuing pregnancy, or it's better for the baby's health to come out now rather than waiting. And sometimes, often those two are in cahoots, meaning if it's good for the mom, it's good for the baby and vice versa. Occasionally, there's a conflict where it's better for one and not for the other. And we have to, a mom usually wins that argument, but we have to sort of, you know, it depends on the circumstances. And so just, you know, like for examples of, like fetal reasons, what are reasons we would say, again, in broad strokes, that it's better for baby to come out rather than staying in?
1: I think a common one would be growth restriction. So if the baby was measuring very, very small, or we were starting to see signs that the placenta was not functioning at the capacity it should, which tends to be associated also with smaller babies, but not always. You can see that in other ways. Another reason is if the amniotic fluid was low, otherwise known as oligohydramnios. These tend to be, you know, sonographic findings or, or, or things you're kind of finding along the way, I feel like those would probably be the more common reasons why. For the fetal side, you know, one of the complicating
0: parts of pregnancy is that for all women who are pregnant and they're getting towards the end of pregnancy, there's this very small but very real risk of stillbirth. We don't talk about it a lot with women just because it's so terrifying. Yeah, you can't have that conversation in a way that's not going to freak someone out. Understandably, it's a a horrifying thing to think about, but there is a risk and it's small. It's it's well less than 1% at the end of pregnancy, but there are situations where that risk starts going up. And so for example, like you said, if the baby's size is very small, or this is an abnormal amount, sometimes too high or too low of fluid. And it's not like that, we know the baby's in dire straits and something horrible is going to happen. It's just, well, if the risk of that is going up, it may not be worth it anymore to stay pregnant. Why take any extra risk? And it's hard to always quantify these things for people, um, but certainly once it starts adding up, that the risk of still worth is going up to the point that it's, you know, just a little too much to tolerate, we usually recommend induction. And there's a lot of risk factors. You know, some of the medical problems that moms have, like, if she has high blood pressure or diabetes, even if she is well and she is stable, the baby's at increased risk of stillbirth in those circumstances. So we usually deliver early. Like twins, for example, that's a classic one. Mom may be doing great. Usually by 37, 38 weeks, moms with twins are begging to not be pregnant anymore. Otherwise, there is an increased risk of stillbirth. Once you start going well past the due date, there's an increased risk. And so these are reasons sort of even if it's not definitive saying your baby's in trouble, your baby needs to be delivered, that's actually the exception usually it's, hey, the risks are starting to add up. It's probably time, you know, to induce the labor and have a, you know, and have the baby. And it does not mean you need a C-section. It just means, you know, we'll try to get you into labor. that So that's on the fetal side. What would be like maternal reasons that the mom's health?
1: Some of them you kind of touched upon because yeah. a lot of them kind of go hand in hand, but could be gestational diabetes or or if someone was already a pre-diabetic. right could be if someone was having some elevated blood pressure, yeah. whether underlying from prior to pregnancy hypertension, or right. newly developed during the pregnancy, or even newly developed at the very end with preeclampsia and whatnot, those I would say are common reasons. Could also be the mother's age, advanced maternal age, and when we would induce would also depend on exact the exact age of the mother too. So it's different if you're thirty-six years old versus if you were forty-four years old. Right. Also, again, if the mom has any underlying issues, so whether associated with the pregnancy, like placental malpresentation like a previa that would warrant right. an earlier delivery or if mom has some autoimmune process or anything like that, that would also right. warrant sometimes an earlier delivery.
0: You know, with the maternal age, Most of that is on the fetal side Mm because there's an increased risk Mm -hmm. of stillbirth, though there are moms who sometimes have a hard time tolerating the pregnancy, so to speak, and that's more common as you get older. So like preeclampsia is a classic one where once the mom's blood pressure starts going up, it's really dangerous to her potentially. It's also dangerous to the baby, so it ends up being sort of both of them benefit, but certainly to the mother. And then, you know, there are, when when women get pregnant, their whole physiology changes, everything in their body changes, and most of those are well-tolerated benign, not a problem for her. It's just sort of how pregnant women are different, but some women don't do so well with them. Some women have a harder time breathing. Some women have different pains that they didn't have before. Again, like blood pressure, sometimes, you know, blood indices like platelet counts start changing. And some of those might be reasons where for the mother, it's better to deliver. And then the third reason is is elective, which is people throw around that term in different circumstances. I view elective as there's really no reason to, to deliver other than The mom says, I don't want to be pregnant anymore. Or the doctor says, I want you to not be pregnant anymore because, uh, you know, I'm going out of town on Monday and I want to be the one to deliver you. Things like that, where it's just purely like a social scheduling type of circumstance and is that something that you see a lot of or people asking about?
1: Not really. Not in not in our current practice, no. Right. I mean- Did you see it in your former practice more? In my more? former practice, yes. In my yeah. former practice, I would say I did a lot more elective inductions. Not because I, I wanted to, because yeah. m- moms were tired or maybe they lived a certain distance away. Right. From the hospital. And even now, if I see that, I, I feel like that tends to be the situation where it's not someone's first baby, it's their second or third child. They already have an advanced cervical exam. They're tired of being pregnant, in addition to that, and they're further away from the hospital. They're getting more anxious. Right. And sometimes some people just want a plan. And right. that in and of itself gives them a sense of control over a right. situation, even though it's, as I refer to, pretend control, because we can't really control <laughs> the baby or their labor, but that gives them some sense of reassurance. And ultimately, that's what they want. They understand those associated risks. That's okay. They have
0: every right to do so. I think one of the big changes, and we'll talk about this, that before the elective induction, it's it's ironic, it was much, much more common like in the past, but- also at the time we thought it was a much less wise thing to do meaning the risks mm-hmm. were higher because and yeah. we will talk about this one of and the and we did we did yeah, them more yeah, i and mean and well, now it's yes, like the it's opposite it's a very strange thing you know, it, was, it was done more but the risks were thought to be higher and now actually the risks are it's thought to be less, lower yes, but it's done less, less it doesn't also, make sense yeah. and uh, that really came from the idea and we'll talk about this the biggest risk that people think about with inducing labor is if I induce the labor, I'm going to increase the chance you're going to end up with a C-section. And that was basically like rule number one in obstetrics is if you induce someone's labor, you're increasing the risk of C-section. So you better have a really good reason to do it like maternal indication, a fetal indication. Otherwise, you're just practicing bad obstetrics. And that was sort of the tenant. It was done all the time, but everyone would sort of hold their nose up at people who did it saying, oh, it's an elective induction. What are they doing? They're increasing their risk and so forth. And The reason that was thought to be the case is when they looked at studies, they would look at women who were in labor on their own, and they would look at women getting induced, and they would see the women in labor on their own had a C-section rate of, let's say, 15%, and the women who got induced, it was 30%. And they said, okay, you have a double the risk of C-section. But the problem is those studies weren't done well, and they compared women who were in labor to women who were being induced, which isn't fair, because if you're really going to decide, is inducing labor going to increase the risk, you have to take your group and half of them induce and half of them wait, right? You can't take the other half and have them be in labor. You have to wait. And so when they did that study, a very big study where they took thousands of women, randomly divided half of them to be induced. These are first babies and and the other half to not be induced and to wait. The overall C-section rate was exactly the same because the women who wait, they may go into labor in two days, but they may, their blood pressure may go up and need to be induced a week from now, or the baby gets bigger. And so we've learned that in fact, it does not appear that inducing labor increases the risk of C-section, which makes the elective induction less elective. And the thought is, okay, if there's really no risk and do it, and we'll talk about other downsides, but there's no like big risk of C-section. And since there's some risk of stillbirth, even if it's very, very low, maybe everyone should get induced at 39 weeks. And there's reasons we don't do that. And a lot of them are logistical, but That's been a change in the past few years, which has definitely changed the conversation around induction, whereas we're not as, I would say, religious against it, religiously against it in that
1: sense. And I also think there's another component to this, is that I think in more recent years, you know, women in general are trying to take, trying to take more control over their labor experience and, Mm. and rightly so. And they're looking for a quote unquote, more natural experience. Right. What natural means to each woman is very, very different. Very different. So whenever they (laughs) tell me I'm like, well, define natural.
0: (laughs) Right. I want a natural birth with an epidural.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yes. Still natural. Or I want
0: to, I mean, does, does, yeah, some, for some women, it means delivering vaginally for some women, it means not an epidural. Some moon is not getting induced. Everyone's different.
1: And that's okay. But I think that also has partly driven a lot of women to not necessarily push for an induction. Right. Because right. they're looking to have the epitome of that quote unquote natural birthing experience. Right. The experience that was of labor. And, yeah not involve any intervention in the yeah, beginning. Yeah. But with that being said, plenty of patients also understand that if there's an indication, there's an indication. And right. no good mother is going to put their baby or their own health at risk and so right. of course they're going to go with the induction, but if it was if it wasn't for that,
0: I'm sure they would choose to continue to wait. Right. I think a lot of it is just people have to be flexible with these things. And the pregnancy, like you said, you can't really have control because there's so many variables and they change. And so certainly we can have a plan and an ideal and what we're looking to do and what would be the best case scenario. And that's great. And I'm totally on board with that. But sometimes things come up like, yeah. okay, the plan has to change if yeah. we're concerned about the baby or the plan has to change if we're concerned about the mother. Or on the flip side, if we thought we'd have a concern and we end up not having a concern, the plan can change back. I mean, yeah. and you have to be sort of flexible and malleable with yeah. this in order to to go through yeah. it. And, and a lot of that is, is based on, and this is such an important part of this that I found that if you have a relationship- with the doctor. If the doctor and patient, they they know each other, they understand each other, they trust each other, they sort of patient views the doctor as her advocate, as someone there to help her and get through this, as opposed to just some person, those conversations are much more meaningful when it as opposed to just some random person who walks in and says, Hey, you need to be induced tonight. And she's like, What? Like, who are you? Like, you don't even know me. You don't know what I want. And so that's that's sometimes challenging, but it's ideal if you can really have developed that relationship over the course of pregnancy. Then these conversations at the end of pregnancy are much more collaborative, as opposed to potentially combative in either direction. Mm-hmm. Right? Sometimes it's the woman who wants to be induced and the doctor doesn't want it, or sometimes it's the opposite: the doctor wants to induce and the woman doesn't want it, and both of those are challenging situations. I've been in both of them and it's difficult. Aside from C-section and not having the experience of a natural sort of labor process, what would be the the downside to being induced? Like what else? If it's not going to increase the risk of C-section and a woman, let's say, doesn't really care either way if she goes into labor on her own and gets induced, what would be a potential downside?
1: So the main thing I tell, I mean, all women in labor, but especially women who are undergoing an induction, is I just tell them that biggest favor you can do yourself is be patient, right? Because as long as you're patient, we're going to be patient with you. And we're going to be in it for the long haul, knowing we're trying to get to the same goal, which is a healthy mom, healthy baby, and ideally should be a vaginal birth, it's just going to take longer, right? And one of the ways I also kind of give even just a general example of that, just so you know, people can grasp it, Is assuming you went into spontaneous labor by the time you're in the the hospital being then admitted let's say getting an epidural because now you're you know you're four or five centimeters there was still another potential anywhere between four to up to 12 hours of labor that happened before that but that was happening at home right and I have to explain to people that that whole part of labor when you're going to be induced is now happening in the hospital. Right. So it just feels like it's longer. Right. But would have ultimately happened. It's just that, yeah, maybe you've been at home on the couch, on the TV, or someone rubbing your back or, you know, a different scenario or a different, you know, you could have been, you know, in your own home environment. Or also it's drawn
0: out sometimes, you know, when you're at home, it's a very slow process over yeah. a day or two, whereas you're getting induced, it starts it's, a little more yes. quickly. Yes. And so it's, not, it's a condensed. Exactly. Yeah. And these
1: are not absolutes either. I mean, there's definitely, absolutely, I mean, there's individuals who sometimes, or in prodromal labor for a couple of days. And right. the notion of induction, boom, finally they're right. in labor quickly and they wish that would have happened soon- right. <laughs> sooner. <laughs> and so that's one of the things I I usually tell them with inductions is just, you just need to give time. Yeah. As long as you're patient, we're patient too. And I always try to give patients an idea of what to expect when they're walking into the hospital. Like right. what's gonna be a time frame right. of events.
0: Right. At, yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, when someone comes in and labor on their own, you know, they're usually it it's almost like if you think of, you know, they they hit the ground running. Like once yeah. they get admitted, they're already contracting every three or four minutes. Their water may or may not be broken, they're four centimeters dilated. So like they're in labor. For our inductions to get to that point, it takes three to twelve hours. Yep. Yeah. Whatever your labor is gonna be, tack on up to twelve hours. So if you thought you were gonna be in the hospital for twelve hours, you're gonna be there twenty-four. And so yeah. For some people, they're like, oh, I really don't want to be in the hospital for that long. I don't want to spend a night in the hospital if I don't have to, you know, while you're in labor. And so that's, uh, it's it's not necessarily like a, a bad thing, but it's it's a consequence of getting induced. And also I tell people it's it's usually if you are planning on laboring without an epidural, it's generally harder to do that if you're getting induced. Possible, but only because, you know, again, if you're going to labor at home, the beginning part to get to four centimeters usually is drawn out over a long time. And most women who don't are not planning epidural can sort of make it to that point and then see how it goes. But if you're getting induced, generally you're going to start having contractions every three minutes from the second minute we start the medicine. And so it's a little bit more condensed. And it's not that the contractions hurt more yes, pound for and pound. I was yeah, just yeah, yeah. going to make it's that. Just, cause it's just they start it earlier. It has to be yeah. very careful because a yeah. lot
1: of people also have this false assumption, I feel, that they think Pitocin right. or an induction is more painful. No, and I disagree no. with that yeah. in the sense where I try to explain to people that when you go into labor on your own, Something has happened slowly. It's right. Every 15, then every 12, then every 10, then every eight. And this is happening gradually over time with the intensity evolving. Versus an induction, the a medication, which is typically Pitocin, is being given and at a titrated dose. So it's not this immediate dose that's given to you, but rather it is titrated over right. time. But the goal is to get you into an adequate contraction pattern of typically every three minutes. And this is now being done with the medication as an intervention. So it's going to get you to point from point A to point B much faster. Right. So that it seems as if it's more intense, but you would have been there regardless. It's just that instead of getting there over 10 or 12 hours at home, you're now potentially getting there within a couple hours in the hospital. Yeah.
0: And I totally agree. I I tell people pound for pound, the contractions are the same, whether it's quote unquote natural or Pitocin related. They don't hurt more with Pitocin. They hurt as much as contractions and would active labor hurt, yep. but they're going to start right away. Yes. You're not exactly. going to have that sort of warm up period. And so it's you're almost going to go as from zero to 60 very Yeah. Important. So, so yeah. that's the reason I think a lot of women, again, and not everyone, but it seems to be that women are more likely to end up with epidural if they're getting induced. And also, it's going to be more. Time in the hospital. Again, ultimately, it's a decision we don't require people to get epidurals to get induced. Some do, some don't. I would say most do, some don't. But that's true with labor in New York City also. Yeah. Just most women get epidurals, but they don't necessarily have to. It's just it's a choice. That is another one. It's just that more time in the hospital, and that's and it's going to be a little bit longer. That's important for people to know. But as you said, it's important for everyone to be patient. Part of the reason in the studies. Induction did not increase the risk of a cesarean. Is in the study that doctors are very patient. Yeah, and so on average, those inductions and labors were eighteen plus hours yeah. on average. So that's an important thing to realize. If if you are a doctor who's not patient and you're going to say if you're not delivered within twelve hours of me starting, we're doing a C-section, then yeah, the induction is not going to work. It sort of it has to be induction plus patience yeah. um, equals not increased risk of C-section. And so that's that's important stuff. And you know, one of the ways we always talk about this as women is to try to put this all in perspective is we have to balance the risks of keeping the baby inside versus taking the baby out. Meaning, is your baby better off inside or are you better off with your baby inside or outside? And that's an ongoing thought process. And if we're at the point where like, listen, it's better to have the baby now, generally that means induction occasionally it means a C-section, but usually for different reasons, but typically it means an induction. And fortunately, what we've learned is it does not increase the risk of a C-section as long as your patient. And everyone understands what it means. Mm-hmm. And so when do we typically induce women in terms of like how far in pregnancy usually?
1: I mean, it depends, right. of course, but typically, usually not earlier than 39 weeks. Right, unless there's a so, real good reason. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So usually anywhere between 39 and 41 weeks. Right. And that's and say. that's
0: and that's because earlier than 39 there is some additional risk to the baby to the of baby. being born. Mm-hmm. Even though it's not technically premature until you're earlier than 37 weeks, it, babies who are induced and born at 38 weeks have a higher chance of going to the NICU And this. So again, the bar is still there, meaning if the concern is high enough for the maternal health or the baby's health, then we'll do it earlier. But if it's really kind of like, oh, it's just probably a little bit better, usually we'll try to wait till 39 weeks. And so there are valid reasons to deliver before 39 weeks, but they're a little bit better defined in terms of like, we know there's a risk, there's definitely a risk. And so we're willing to take that additional risk to the baby in order to do it. Whereas once you get to 39 plus weeks, there isn't really any advantage to the baby of being pregnant of prolonging uh, more, the right? Because yes. once a, the, meaning the likelihood of going to the NICU is the same at 39, 39 weeks and weeks 40 weeks and 41. 40, In yeah. fact, it goes up a little bit at 41 weeks yeah. and the likelihood of a complication, like a respiratory complication or an infection, things like that for the baby plateau around 39 weeks. Yeah. And so we generally don't feel compelled to keep someone pregnant more than 39 weeks, again, unless it's sort of something she wants to do and this, that. And there's also some logistics involved and meaning, you know, in order to induce someone, they have to come in and have a room and a bed and hospitals are busy. And so most labor floors will have schedules for inductions and there's prioritization. The people of the the bigger, greater reasons will take precedent over the people who are more elective, which again, all of this makes sense. And a lot of times when people are trying to figure out, I want to be induced, I want to induce, We're like, well, we're there, we're there every day. It's just the hospital has to have a spot for you. Unless there's something really emergent, they're not going to bump some woman from her scheduled induction unless there's a good reason to. And so there is some also understanding of the just the system that has to take place with that. When women are induced earlier than 39 weeks, so it's like 38, 37, 36, there are times when we sort of prepare for that, like maybe give steroids or this. Again, generally, if it's under 37 weeks or even 34 weeks, that's to help the babies. But in terms of the induction process itself, it's the same.
1: Yeah, the process itself is the same.
0: Right. And so what would be the process? Walk me through what, what a, a woman would experience if she's scheduled for induction. Let's say uh, we want her to deliver tomorrow. Right. So what would happen?
1: So usually the way I counsel patients, and again, this is assuming a typical situation typical. with the typical goals that a mom wants, right? which also means that most moms want an epidural. <laughs> so I'm prefacing with that. Usually I would tell people you're going to be coming in the night before. The time is, is dictated by the hospital. So it could be anywhere between 8 p.m. to even as late as possibly midnight. Right. But somewhere between 8 to 10 p.m. typically, you're going to come into the hospital. Once you're in the hospital, usually the nurses will first kind of get you tucked in. They're going to ask some general questions to get you admitted. And then you may even also see a resident who will also take some information from you. Once you're kind of tucked into the system, they're going to give you an iv once you have an iv they may then of course give you some iv fluids to go with it if you did not want that that is possible but again most people are okay with receiving iv fluids at that point i usually tell people if you're planning on having an epidural you don't get brownie points for waiting there's no reward for being a hero here if you know your plan was to get an epidural then get an epidural first right because there's no bonus or gain And there's no downside in doing that first, that you're comfortable. Right. I just want to pause it for one second, just to talk about that, and that
0: that is important because, again, if women are planning to not have an epidural, fine, don't get an epidural. Yeah, that's great. Yes. yes. But if you're planning to get it, a lot of people say, "Well, should I wait till I'm in active labor?" No. You right. You you can. I mean, you're welcome to. It's not. You know, they'll do it at any point you want. But it doesn't help. It doesn't speed up your time to labor. And that's
1: the thing because a lot of people feel that they want to wait till they're in active labor. Because they think they're going to slow down labor. And that's when I tell them, but you're not in labor. You're being induced. We are giving you medications to bring on your labor. So there is no slowing down of your labor. We're the ones that are helping to to create and make that happen. Right. And
0: this this has been studied. There's no difference on the, you know, if you're getting induced, even if you're not getting induced, but we're talking about induction, when you get your epidural, whether it's before in the beginning or late it does not change your time to delivery and it does not change whether you end up with a c-section or not i would i tell women the only downside potentially for getting it earlier is if they wanted to maybe have the ability to be more mobile right because once you have the epidural you're pretty much lying in bed but since it's overnight most people want and to sleep anyways and so, you know and it helps it helps you, lead you sleep me into yeah. <laughs> the next thing that i tell
1: people yeah. <laughs> to do but it, but they get the epidural once they have an epidural and they're comfortable then the next plan is typically to place what's referred to as a cervical balloon, which is a tiny catheter that's thread through the cervix and the balloon is inflated with sterile, sterile water, essentially. And then it applies basically the way, as I say, it's just mechanical traction on the cervix. In addition to that, then we're also starting Pitocin, which is a medicine via the IV. So it's not something you're orally taking. It's via the IV. The nurse will continuously titrate and control that medication. So it's not anything you need to worry about. It's just being given. And that's it. And then I tell people nothing will happen for a long time. Right. (laughs) So if you have an epidural, that means you're not going to feel the pressure, the discomfort of having the balloon the way you may feel it sitting in your pelvis, nor are you going to feel the initial cramps or contractions from the Pitocin. And your goal is to sleep. Now, yeah, of course, it's overnight. hard. Yes. <laughs> now, it's hard to sleep in a hospital. You know, there's a lot of, you know, bells and, and whistles and dings that you're hearing, but at least dim the lights. Don't try to turn on the TV. Don't try to start reading a book. You know, just close your eyes and rest because even if you're resting, that's, that's still good. Yeah, yeah. Because the next day you're going to need energy. Because right. when the time comes to push, you don't right. want to be hope like wishing. Oh man, I wish I would have slept overnight. Right. right.
0: Yeah. And that's that's all really good points. And you know, it, it's it's hard sometimes to explain like on a podcast exactly what happens with the balloon. This is something you could Google image, but basically a yeah. cervical Foley. You said it the the Foley catheter is something that's normally placed in a bladder, like when people have surgery or this people heard of a Foley, but instead we place it through the vagina through the cervix and inflate a balloon and we put it on traction so. The thought is we're sort of like slowly pulling that balloon, which is about the size of a golf ball, give or take, through the cervix. And so when it eventually comes out the cervix, which can yeah. be one, two, six, ten 10 hours later. Well, and
1: that's what I- Right. Your I, cervix I,
0: is as dilated as a golf ball, which yes, is three to four yes, centimeters. Exactly. Yeah. And that's
1: what I tell people. I tell people- You can be lucky and maybe the balloon is only in for an hour or two. Right. Or the balloon could, in theory, be up to 10 to 12 hours. Yeah. So I've seen it in both ways. However, the average, I would say, is somewhere around four to six hours for most people. Yeah. And then I tell people, and even once the balloon comes out, right. Guess what? You're right. a whopping three to four centimeters yeah. dilated, <laughs> and the cervix is typically still not thinned out. Right, it's long. So yeah. you're, you're dilated, but still not not effaced or not thinned out. And so I explain that even once the balloon is out, you're still in what's considered early or latent phase right. labor. Right,
0: you're not the same as the three or four centimeters of the woman who comes in in labor. In labor, because her cervix we, is know. all thin and contracting exactly. Yeah.
1: And so then the next plan ideally would be to break water. Right. And so I usually mention that either immediately after the balloon comes out or anywhere between one to two hours after the balloon yeah. is out, we're breaking water. And the reason is to continue to augment and induce the labor. Right, And the Pitocin continues during this this time, totally unchanged. And once we break water, that's it. There's nothing else to do but continue to wait. And once, usually for someone's first baby, I would say, once they're hitting six centimeters is ideally when now their labor will feel like it will start progressing at a much faster rate. So I tell people to get to the six centimeters could still take. Anywhere, I mean, listen, again, if you're lucky, it could be two to four hours, but could take anywhere between six to 12 hours, and that would be normal, and that's okay. And once you're six centimeters, though, going from six to 10, this is where you're going to feel, whoa, this is different than what's been happening this entire right. night and morning. Right, now I'm in real labor. Yes, yeah. because going from six to 10 centimeters can take anywhere between two to four hours, sometimes right. a little bit longer, but you know, that's when you'll progress at a more rapid pace. Right. But I also will then warn people, even once you hit 10 centimeters, that still doesn't mean we're (laughs) immediately pushing. Right. So because we're also waiting for the head to come down. So ideally, once the head is nice and low and at that point, most women are having an urge to push, they're feeling some sort of pressure or rectal pressure or feeling almost as if, as they would say, as if I have to poop. Right. And that's our cue. And hopefully the baby's now in good positioning to then start pushing.
0: Right. I mean, once women get to sort of that six centimeter mark and for some it's earlier, some it's later. But around that time, usually at that point, their labor is no different from someone who wasn't getting induced. You sort of you sort of put them in labor. And many times we can even turn down or turn off the Pitocin at that point because their brain is sort of kicked in and they're making their own Pitocin. And in terms of the expectation of timing, it's very similar as to someone comes in in labor. And it is variable. I usually tell women that from the time the balloon comes out, and you're about three to four centimeters, and we break your water, and we have you on Pitocin, typically, on average, you should expect to deliver in around 12 hours. Some women are lucky, and it's four to six hours from that point. Some women, it takes 18 hours. But usually, from the point, all those three things are done. Balloon is out, broke your water, and you're on Pitocin. It's about 12 hours. So if you think of the timing, if someone comes in at 10 p.m., they get the balloon at, let's say, midnight or 1 a.m., it comes out at 5 or 6 a.m., and we break your water, you're going to deliver in the early evening. And I would say that's and this is for first babies. Usually, yep. if it's not your first baby, all of these things will be faster. Yes, all yeah. these, things, all are these things go. Every single sometimes yes, you yeah. don't even need a balloon. Yeah, if it's exactly. Your,
1: you know, because you're already you're already you know two or three centimeters dilated, right. and, and in right. your face, the balloon's not going to give you much more gain. So I would just break water right. and start pitocin at that point. Right. The yeah. balloon
0: is part of these things we call cervical right. ripening agents, and that's for someone whose cervix is more closed, more long. They need something to get the cervix on. If someone walked in to be induced and they're already three centimeters dilated, which people are, they don't have to be in labor. They can be walking around. Then we wouldn't do a balloon. We would say, okay, let's start the Pitocin and break your water. And that chops off all that early time, but then it could be 12 hours. There are other things available for cervical ripening. Like we use the balloon in our practice. We use it. Most people in our hospital use it. There are other Forms of prostaglandin, something called mesoprostol or site attack. There's something yes. called servadin. I mean, there's other things, but those are medicinal ways to get the cervix to shorten and open a little bit. You know, there's they're sort of similar efficacy to the balloon. We prefer the balloon because there's a little bit more control. It doesn't affect the baby's heart rate or the contractions. So you have more control over the contractions because the pitocin you can titrate. You could always take out a balloon if there's a problem. Whereas once you put in a medicine, it's being, it's absorbed. So, you know, there isn't a right or a wrong here. We prefer the balloon. That's how we do it. I've done it both ways in my practice and I, I happen to prefer this way. But, you know, the, if you're a different hospitals, different people do it a little uh, different. Different, yeah. Yeah, the beginning. The, the Pitocin's more, the same yeah. everywhere. It's, yeah, and, Pitocin's yeah. the
1: same. But the cervical ripening agent could be either Cervidil Cytotec. Or yeah. the balloon, and even the Cytotec can also be given vaginally or orally. Right, So right. there's also two modes. I mean, my prior practice, it was more the misoprostol, the Cytotec right. that we use as a cervical ripening agent, vaginally, or orally. Initially, it was vaginally, and then ultimately the hospital then transitioned into orally. Yeah, and a
0: lot of it, I remember when I was a resident, you would go every three hours, you'd make rounds and give everyone their Cytotec. cytotec. And so it was because yeah. like, it was. <laughs> It was I dosed am. every three hours. So you, like at midnight, you, you go to 10 people, then like at so 3 m. Every yeah. 15 minutes, you're going and from so, one room to another. Right. The balloon <laughs> just goes in once and then it comes, comes out. out and, yep. and a lot of times, you know, and and again, always, it's different based on what kind of hospital you deliver in. A lot of the times the cytotech or the balloon, it's going to be placed potentially by your own doctor, but that's probably the exception. A lot of times it's placed by one of the resident doctors, one of the nurses, potentially a physician assistant, a nurse midwife. There's a lot of people. And because- you know, if you think about it, if you're being induced and you come in at you know nine or ten at night, and you're not going to deliver to nine or ten the next night, you really don't want your obstetrician being there the entire time, I and mean, because then by the time to deliver, you don't want him or her to be falling on their face exhausted. So usually it's going to be someone else, and you know, whatever. Yeah. But that that's a very typical thing. And people worry about that. And I say like, I haven't put in a balloon myself in 10 years. Like the residents put them in for, you know, if I'm there, I'll put it in because I can, but it's, it's not a thing that, re- that requires, you know, the greatest yeah, no, skill in I, the world. And I, and I always yeah.
1: explain that too, that usually the start of the induction is usually going to be by one of the residents or the PAs. Yeah. And that, Again, we're always readily accessible and available. Yeah. But that ultimately once once the balloon is out, they're gonna see me. And yeah. I'm gonna be the only one breaking their water. Yeah. Usually when I'm counseling patients when whenever they're even being admitted for their induction, or if I saw them in the days prior to their induction and I'm going over the same exact conversation we're having right yeah. now as to like a time frame of what to expect and so forth, you know, usually I'll say, Okay, you're seeing me now. I'm not going to be placing the balloon, but as soon as you get the epidural, one of the residents will place the balloon. But once the balloon is out, you'll see my face again. Yeah. And it will likely be in this time frame, but we'll see, you know, based on all the factors that we talked about. And then my goal will be to break your water and then, but know that even then there's still going to be no major action happening. Yeah. Yeah. That really don't expect the action until we're finally approaching Six centimeters within with a thin a face cervix, yeah. and the head's coming down. So. Yeah, there's
0: it's it's there's a lot of stuff that's sort of done when you get there, but then it's a lot of just waiting, waiting. you know, because you're you're trying to you're trying to get the body yeah. to go into labor, and it takes time. And another thing with inductions that people always have a lot of questions about is regarding their support person, whether it's her husband or partner, whether her her doula is going to be with her, or friends going to be with her, or mother's going to be with her, whoever it is. And yeah, there's a lot of you know, confusion, like what should they do? When should they come? And, you know, there isn't a right or wrong. The in, At least in our hospital, the support person is welcome to be with them the entire time in labor. You have a private room during all of this from the start of the induction until the baby is out. You're the only one there. So someone can be with you 24 seven. But sometimes it's not, you know, sort of feasible. Sometimes it's yeah, have, may have at children home. at home yeah, and, and they're so, having yeah. childcare
1: issues. Yeah. And so,
0: yeah, I tell people that the night part, some women don't want to be alone. Obviously that's that's totally understandable, but you know, occasionally the the support person, it's just better for the two of them if, you know, he or she sleeps at home overnight, whether it's just to get a good night's sleep or whether it's to be with, you know, one of their children until the morning when the babysitter comes or whatever. And that's fine. And, again, it's, it's very unusual if anything happens overnight. And as long as someone's close by and we could always call or text them if there's something going on and they need to come in, it's not like the person has to be with them. Again frequently they are
1: yeah um, maybe, i feel like yeah. the majority of the time are. though the support person yeah. is there from right. from the beginning but they could
0: also like in the morning like frequently if i come in and i'll break the water and hey you're three or four centimeters everything's looking great you know it's all this and i'll say to the person like
1: now it's we time have- to go get breakfast. yeah go
0: yeah go yeah <laughs> go like go go get breakfast go get yes. a coffee if you want to if you want to if you live in the city you want to go home and take a shower and come back in an hour or two we'll call you I've, if anything I've changes I've ordered- yeah. Through seamless yeah. with the husbands before. Okay. Yeah, it's just it's an important thing to realize that this is this is gonna and that's why I always tell people like what should I bring? I'm like bring chargers. Yeah. Right. What, whatever devices chargers. you have, you know, bring yes. your chargers. Bring yes. if you for if you don't want to, you know, watch on an iPad or your TV or TV. Bring a book. You know, if you got stuff to do, you could bring a laptop. If you have enough dirt, yeah. you could do work. I mean, you can order yeah. stuff. I mean, you can do whatever you like. Really, bring snacks, at least for the support person, something to eat or drink, whether yeah. women do or don't eat or drink and labor is its own podcast and that's its own thing, but whatever, yeah. uh, based on <laughs> what you're allowed to do, bring in for, you know, him or hers with you, they should have something as well. And because, again, it's going to be pretty quiet. If someone does not have an epidural, it is going to be uh, a yeah, yeah, they're going to feel it. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so Someone's be, prepared with, yeah, be trying, prepared with some sort of breathing exercises, exactly. a, you know, a Lamaze class, a doula, something, exactly. because it's going to require that. Person that person will yeah. have a support person, Yeah. Yeah.
1: whether a doula or their partner. But yeah. yeah, because whether they're massaging their lower back or helping yeah. them do the breathing techniques or being supportive. I mean, it's yeah. really what it comes down to. Yeah, so, that's a, that's, so that, that person is well named a support being. person. <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: Yeah. One of my brothers told me that and his first baby, his wife, they, they decided that she's going to have a doula. And I said, I said, you know what? I was just asking, like, why? And he said, well, it became very obvious that she was going to require level support that I am unable to provide <laughs> <laughs> so he, said, he said he said so I uh, rather than provide inadequate support, support I'm, gonna, gonna I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna bring so I'm gonna adequate. bring in a helper outsource this a little bit. Like, I'll be there but I know I'm not you know capable so yeah. so he, he yeah, outsourced yeah. it which was I thought uh, very telling one thing I wanted to come back to because again this is also something because it comes up a lot and I think a lot of women are concerned that they're going to be in a situation where again either, they feel like the doctor is like pushing an induction on them and they don't want it. Uh, Or potentially on the flip side, they're really wanting to be induced and the doctor's opposed to it. And what would be, you know, let's say you're meeting with a patient and she's, you know, well before delivery, she's in the beginning of pregnancy and she were asking you about like, what's going to happen if that happens? Like, how would you approach that situation? Let's first talk about the doctor wants Or is suggesting or recommending an induction, and and the woman is, you know, hesitant about it. Like, how would you talk a patient through that? Because that happens.
1: Yeah, I I think the main thing is I always ask, "Why?" Talk to me. Tell me what's the story. Right. Because you can't take things sometimes for being at face value for what they've said. You know, I need to understand what their thought process is as to why they came to that conclusion. Right. And many times you'll realize that they may have false you know misconceptions of you know they are thinking for instance oh but the epidural will do this or as we talked about earlier but if i get induced that automatically means i'm going to have a c-section right or that automatically means the baby you know maybe go to the NICU or the you know all these things and it's now okay well let's let's talk right because now right. my job is to is to educate basically the consumer you know so really what are the risks what are the benefits what are your concerns? And many times you come to realize that you can address all the concerns they may have. right? And that even if they have to undergo an induction for a medical reason for which they understand that it's for the health of either their own health or the health of the baby, that not just mom, but their right. partners are also on board with that, but that they can still have the experience they want. So right. again, whether that's no epidural or trying to you know sit up in the bed, you know whatever it may be, it could be a lot of these little things that are important to... To a certain individual and that's f- and right. that's okay right a lot of people feel there's a lot of absolutes and there's not i right. mean as we talked about earlier in the podcast it's about adaptability right so and just being flexible and right. i think as long as both people can come to the meet somewhere in the middle it's fine right but many times i think f- majority of the time when people don't want to be induced it's usually based on false like preconceptions right and once you clarify those and then people can ask more questions. Now they feel better and yeah. now they're okay. Yeah. And it's very rarely do you still meet resistance at that point. Right. Um, I, it's been my my experience.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think it's really just about communication on both exactly. ends. I think for if a woman's in a situation where she feels like an induction is being pushed on her, I think the two things to make sure to communicate to doctors, number one, to ask, please be very clear, like what? Is it that you're afraid of, such that you're recommending an induction? Are you worried about my health? Are you worried about the baby's health? And for what reason? And then the doctor should be able to explain, You know, I'm concerned because of A, B, and C. Okay. And the second thing is, if the reason a woman is hesitant to be induced, say, these are the things I am concerned about. Meaning I am afraid that if I get induced, it will lead to A, or B, or C. And let the doctor say, okay, This is correct, or this is incorrect, or this is false, this is real. And then at least you'll have the scales. You'll know what is the reason we're recommending it. What is the reason you don't prefer to have it? And ultimately, it is a woman's choice what to do. I mean, we don't, you know, force people and tie them down and induce them. Like it's a choice. And if a woman says, I think you're overblowing the risk and you're, not concerned with what I'm afraid of, and you decide not to do it, that's okay. I I would say that that's probably not a good conclusion communication wise, but ultimately that's, that's, that's anyone's right. I think that, you know, like, like you said, I don't really come to those circumstances much. When, when I initially have a situation like that, after I'm able to better explain what my concerns are, and I'm able to better sort of, you know, address what her concerns are, usually it's, oh okay, that makes sense. Let's do it. Even if that's not what they wanted, it's like, okay, well, this is the situation. Things yeah. have changed. And
1: sometimes also what helps is a little bit of repetition. Yeah. You know, sometimes things do happen suddenly where someone now, you know, let's say, oh, you know, we're 39 weeks and a couple days and you, you had a sonogram today. Oh, it turns out the fluid is now yeah. low and you need to be induced. You know, that's someone who also didn't walk in that day. Right. Thinking that now you're going to be induced today. I mean, now, is it always possible and on their mind that I could have the baby anytime now, of course. Do they, I'm sure, have their bags packed and ready for the last month? Of course they do. But that still doesn't mean that you were prepared to walk in for a routine visit thinking, wait, now I'm going to the hospital? What? What? And so sometimes people just need also a moment. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's just pausing, process the information. Let me now say it again. Right. And let's go through it again because sometimes information sinks in the first time, and now it's going to sink in better the second time. And also, I, this is where I feel it's always beneficial to have a support person there, yeah. Because maybe what one person caught, the other person didn't, and yeah. vice versa. Yeah. And what's also great in our practice, at least yeah. specifically, is you know usually if the fluid's slow, people are already seeing, you know maternal right. fetal medicine right. downstairs telling you, you need to be induced. Right. They've it's been, been double on. teamed. And, <laughs> yes. And now they're also coming upstairs to now talk to me and I'm right. and they already know I'm going to tell them the same thing, right. but you're, but this is still repetition. Right. And it still right. is allowing a gap, a moment for the patient to process th- what they're being told and then think, do I have any questions or are my concerns that so now as they're coming to me, even though they've already heard the information, I'm going to still tell them everything all over again, but they've, they, they can now listen almost a little bit better because that initial shock is gone. Okay. Something's okay. Okay. I'm settling into what's happening. So, but yeah, I mean, ultimately it comes down to communication and, and I also think repetition.
0: I I think you made a really good point also about the support person. And when, you know, when women ask me what visit should he come to, you know, he's busy or this, and I don't want to drag him or he's annoying or, you know, whatever it is that, you know, when should he come? And usually the first one is a really good initial prenatal care visit is Good couple of the ultrasounds are really cool and you know to see but i would say the end those last like once you're coming every week at 36 weeks you know it's even though it may be more difficult those are the appointments because however many questions you have you know your partner has the same questions what's going to be how long it's going to take what to expect what's in all these things and so number one he or she gets to ask those questions as well and number two when things happen, and that's when things happen, right? You're contracting, your cervix is open. It's not. The fluid, the baby, you know, your blood pressure, all these things happen, and it's like a shock to the system. It's much better for both people to hear it at the same time because they can process it together. They can bounce questions, you know, off each other. You get different perspectives as opposed to having have one person come and say, uh, I've got to be induced. Like, why? I don't get it. I don't know. And it, that becomes a lot more scary, I would think. So I think that's a really good point that if, it's a good time, those last visits, to yes. not come alone if if you have the option. You know, obviously yeah. not everyone has that option. Michelle, this was great. Thanks for coming in, discussing induction of labor. Again, it comes up a lot. It shouldn't be scary, and it shouldn't be something that's a shock to the system. It's something that, you know, as long as everyone understands what's going on, usually it's collaborative and everyone agrees. Yeah. Uh, but it was also a good review of what to expect just sort of practically is going to happen yeah. during the induction. So thank you so much, and I look forward thank to you. having you on for- many more podcasts.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com.